The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. Alan, we're looking at a challenging time in the economy. You have most investors are still betting on rate cuts this year, a number of them, and they're still confused about how soon those rate cuts will come to fruition and how deep they will go. Do you think that they're right to expect so many? I think that everything about investing is about probabilities, and I think the highest probability is that's going to be the case because inflation's coming down. Having said that, I think that there's a, a bit of an underestimation for how easy financial conditions have come over the last couple months. You know, you look at what's happened in the equity markets, you look at how credit is tightening the way it is, and that's like the Fed's worst nightmare. So it's very difficult to arrest inflation when the consumer is as strong as it is. So I think that's the one watch out. But again, probabilistically, I think it's, it's right for people to assume that, but I think people might be misjudging the probability that financial conditions have come too, gotten too easy. How do you prepare for that probability? What it assumes is that interest rates could stay higher for longer, inflation could stay higher for longer. What does that mean in terms of how you invest? Well, a big part of the economy across a number of different asset classes, whether it's real estate, whether it's private equity, built a lot of their capital structures on a, on a very low rate environment. Some might say free money. So I think the challenge with staying higher for longer is that a lot of these capital structures that have been built in a way that for free money air, that, 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 that they need to be re-equitized or more capital needs to come in, which, which creates an opportunity for Sixth Street to go in and be a solution provider to be able to provide capital so that they can grow into their capital structures. But again, so much of the economy has been built for low rate environments. I think that's the challenge that that it might pose for the economy. Well, do you have to prepare for the prospect of not just higher for longer rates, but even a rate hike at this point? I th- it, it, it's, it's interesting you say that because it's something we, in, our, in our investment committee we've been talking about a lot. When you think about the consumer, which has been the Super Bowl champion of the economy, people said, yeah, everyone last year was predicting hard landing, hard landing. What really got us through this, the consumer. Consumer has a job. Wages are growing, and, and, and most importantly, their biggest liability is typically their mortgage. That's been fixed with wages growing and inflation coming down. It's creating a lot of real spending power. So that probability of you know, potentially not even rate cuts, but a, a rate increase is, I think, a lot higher than people expect for those reasons. It's interesting. You go back to around this time last year, a little less than a year ago, and under the weight of higher interest rates, you saw some significant things start to break, particularly cracks in the, the banking system. If you saw rate hikes or even rates stay at the level that they are, what else breaks? Look, anything that is a levered asset class that has floating rate liabilities is at risk. And that applies across big parts of the economy. Again, is it going to break? It may not necessarily get break because it depends on this, how high rates get increased. And again, that's not our predominant probability, but it will create additional stresses in the system. And that's something we're always watching out for. 
as things start to weaken in some parts of the market, you think about the regional banking system and how much private credit players have been able to step into that fray. What is the opportunity for you now to buy assets at prices that may have started to fall off in value? We, the way we look at the opportunity is not only buying assets, but really what we're trying to be is provide new capital or new equity or more just general capital into situations, whether it's companies or real estate assets. So that's kind of the way that we think about it. I think we're far off from banks, you know, fire selling assets. That's not our predominant probability because, again, the economy is pretty strong right now and arguably maybe, maybe getting too strong. So that's not our predominant probability. But obviously, when you look at what's going on in commercial real estate, again, we don't think this is systemic risk. But there are obviously large exposures, particularly in you know, some of the smaller and regional sized banks, banks, and that's something we're, we're looking out for. How much pain is there in that system? It, it, it's meaningful. You know, when you look at the tangible equity in a lot of these regional banks and then you sort of transpose it against the unrealized losses, it will create stresses. You know, obviously, it's bank by bank dependent. Um, but again, the economy is really strong right now. So I think that's providing some protection for that. But if rates stay higher, that will obviously create additional stresses. Well, you, you mentioned the commercial real estate market and the real estate market more broadly. If you were to put money to work in that sector at scale, what could that look like for you? It's interesting you say that because the last few years, so we, we have a big real estate team. The last few years, we haven't really done that much because we thought valuations got way too speculative and what's interesting right now it's in fact one of the things that we think is one of the bigger opportunities for six years because we're sitting with a pretty clean portfolio there's lots of opportunities and that's really across the whole commercial real estate spectrum not only in the u.s but also in europe are there parts that you avoid you think about just how damaged the office sector has become and worries about work from home and the impact that they might have on big cities are there parts of the area that you avoid in general, there's obviously different markets that pose different risks, but as long as something's not binary risk, we can generally price it. That's what we do. That's our job as investors, whether it's in real estate, whether it's in uh, corporates, whether it's in infrastructure, whether it's in agriculture, that's our job. So again, as long as, long as it's not like stroke of the pin risk, we can generally price that risk. So we're looking across the whole swath of the of commercial real estate. So is that an easy way to say you can get into office, but for the borrower, it could be expensive? It, it, in, a, in, a new, in a new money situation, if you look at sort of the cost of capital today versus what it was, let's say, pre-COVID or even in, in most parts of COVID, it's obviously a different cost of capital. But over time, that'll start to work itself, work itself out and things will normalize once, once the economy gets to a, a steady state. Now let's take this massive step back for a second because you think about the wake of 2008 and just how much the large banks have retrenched. Regional banks really started to feel the pain of what had happened at that time and the boom you saw in private investment giants. And then you look at kind of this second phase here where there's a chance once again for you and your rivals to get much bigger. Uh, there are a lot of questions about the loans that are extended from regional banks and the place that private credit could play in that space. Do you see this as kind of a second coming? The ability for you guys to get much bigger in the wake of so many firms kind of contracting on their lending practices? Yeah, so there's a couple things happening. One is, you know, uh, stress or damage balance sheets, that obviously contracts lending. And a big part of that you're seeing in small regional sized banks as a result of their commercial real estate exposure. That obviously creates an opportunity for private capital players like ourselves to come in. But the bigger thing is really if you go back to 
what happened in 2008, and obviously you start thinking about Dodd-Frank, is that when you go back through history, it's never a credit thing that creates crises. It's always a liquidity issue. And the heart of every liquidity issue is mismatch of assets and liabilities. So I think as a principle, and this is, we're talking about systemic risk here, one of the benefits of private capital is that we have matched assets and liabilities. When you think about a bank where you've got short-term deposits, it's very difficult, unless you're one of the larger banks that's got highly diversified base, it's very difficult to sort of match assets and liabilities. And that's why private capital is sort of a natural extension into these spaces. And by the way, good for the economy because it fills in the gaps. If you go back to the SVB time period where banks stopped lending, private, ga- private capital was able to step in there. And by the way, increase the probability of a soft landing. And I think sometimes that, that, that gets lost in, the, in, in sort of the discussion, but that's really the heart of it. It's an interesting moment because over the last year, you saw private credit get into some massive deals. You guys were just founded in 2009, and yet you've become one of the most active players in this space. You were on some of the largest transactions as a lender that the market even saw. But now we fast forward to this year and the banks are coming back. The markets are opening back up. How do you see the competition between the regular way banking system, the, the syndicated loan market, and private credit playing out? There, there's, always, there's always been competition. Everything that we do, this is not 30 years ago, there's always competition. So for us, like when we think about banks, we think about them more as partners. They, they lend to us, they advise us. In a lot of cases, they, they co-invest with us. So there's a, there's a, there's a combination of co- competition, but there's also a lot of partnership. And that's generally how you know, Sixth Street, as we're approaching sort of those relationships, that's kind of how we, how we think about it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because I think it's been an open question in the market, how willing firms like you would be to partner with a bank. A lot of the banks are going off and starting their own arms. Goldman Sachs, your alma mater, is doubling down on direct lending while also syndicating loans on the other side. JP Morgan has their own private credit uh, venture at way here. Do you see yourself partnering with a bank? We partner with banks all the time. Would we do something in that type of structure? I wouldn't rule it off the table. Is that one of our top 10 priorities? Not one of our top 10 priorities, but if there's a win-win between one of our banking partners, we're always going to be open-minded to that. I mean, that's Sixth Street. Our firm was built on win-win partnerships. So we'll always be open to it and you know, happy to discuss with anyone if they've, if they've got a good idea. Well, bring us inside the thinking. What are the reasons for it and what are the reasons against it? Should you make some of those more formal partnerships work out, why would you do it? It's, it's, hard, it's really hard to think about because it's just not, we have, a, we have a lot going on at Sixth Street. We're as busy, literally, as we've ever been in our history. I mean, every one of our businesses is busy. So given it's not a top priority for Sixth Street, it's not something we're spending a lot of time thinking about. Well, what's interesting, too, is not just partnerships, but your ability to buy assets from other banks. Back in October, you led a consortium here to buy Green Sky, this consumer lending business that Goldman had bought and then exited. Why? Why did you agree to do that? Again, it goes back to sort of what we talked about earlier, which is when you look at the components of the consumer, consumer, their biggest liability is a fixed rate mortgage. Wage growth has been pretty, pretty constant. Everyone's got, everyone's, you know, everyone's got a job. It created pretty good conditions. So that's number one. But the second thing is it's just an incredible franchise. It's one of the best franchises out there. We followed the we followed the business for a long time, and marrying those two theses together made it an interesting interesting transaction. For so us. this is a big bet on the consumer. It's 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 a big 
I wouldn't say it's a big bet on the consumer. I'd say it, it is absolutely a component of the bet, but it's also just a really good, a really good franchise with a really good management team. And those three, those three things together made it really interesting for us. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. As you navigate kind of the area of the consumer that you've said a few times now has been so strong, mm -hmm. what worries you about the U.S. consumer? You think about the leverage that they hold today in credit card debt alone. You think about any worries about a softening job market. Are there concerns that you have? The, the biggest concern is if you start to see big layoffs. And what could create big layoffs is people start feeling less good about the economy. What is the reason why people could feel less good about the economy? It's all of a sudden they have a mindset in boardrooms that, you know, financial conditions are easing. It goes back to what I said earlier, which is that they start to, if financial conditions easing, the economy gets too strong and the Fed can't cut rates, in fact, possibly has to raise rates, that could have a big impact. Now, I will say the Fed has done a very good job. They've been very smart with respect to their management of the 10-year Treasury. Like, if you look at their balance sheet, they've ma been managing down the risk. They've kept the short end of the curve high. But 10-year, which finances a lot of the investment-grade companies, which a big part of the job universe, uh, by the way, ha have all fixed-rate debt, those holdings have actually gone up. So in the face of Fed shrinking balance sheet, that is the one part of the market where they've actually kept the balance sheet. In fact, actually grown the balance sheet. And that's, I think, something people sometimes don't pay attention to. So that, that's the biggest, just getting back to it, is job losses. That's always the big concern. Do you worry about a market that's still on life support? If we still have quantitative tightening, kind of propping up parts of the market, like the 10-year end of the curve, if you will. I, I think it's all, it's all about managing a series of risk. And I think the Fed, at least so far, Maybe early you could argue they're a little slow to get in the game, but I think so far they've been really th thoughtful and ultimately their job, it's a very difficult job. They're managing a series of risk and you weigh that versus the other risk. I think from a risk reward perspective, I think they've done a pretty good job. Now, consumer, more on the consumer, you've made a very notable bet on sports mm -hmm. here. You have uh, exposure to all sorts of different franchises from uh, women's leagues to soccer to the NBA. What is there a part of that you're not a part of yet when you think about sports and events? Is there a league that you'd wish you were a part of? I think that we are very bullish on women's sports. We started in women's soccer, or some might say women's football. I think women's sports, when you look at technology, it's broken down the barriers for people to access women's sports. You look at all the trends on attendance, on sponsorship revenues, it's just the very beginning, and it's not just soccer, which is, we think, the most obvious one today. It's really across every sport, and you're seeing it across volleyball. You're seeing it across basketball. I just saw something recently about cricket. It's just the beginning. We're at the very, we're at the very beginning of that, and anything related to that theme is something we're very focused on. It begs the question, too, as investors like you go into different areas, different themes, sports being one large one that has been noticeable. Are there things investors are ignoring? You think about private credit and you think about the big mega deal, the financing of mergers and acquisitions. Are there areas that are more exciting to you? In sports? In general. Uh, look, I think 
free sports live experiences very interesting. We, we've talked about that it's not only women's sports it's also live experiences the other thing is real estate we spoke about look part of being interesting is a clean portfolio because we didn't do a lot of the sins i think some people have done over the last three years it positions us in a pretty unique way that's a big opportunity not only in the us and europe and then lastly just going back to what we've been talking about today is just when you think about a big part of the economy companies were financed in a free money or low rate environment and those capital structures were not built for higher rates and again they 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 possibly that's a predominant case they'll come down that just creates a lot of opportunities to be partners with companies and be able to provide reequitization or additional capital into businesses and assets. So this is not just the regular way M&A. This is leveraged finance as it pertains to, would you, would you be refinancing some of the riskier companies coming it, It's everything. So Sixth Street, our, our, our investment philosophy is flexibility. You know, the way, the way our firm was built from literally day one is no silos, no politics, no BS. And the reason why we had that is so that people can work together. Like when we sit out Sixth Street, we said we don't want to be private equity or private real estate or private credit or infrastructure real estate. We just want to be investors. But you can't just be investors if people aren't talking together. And that's how we're set up. So like when we think about the, the, the whole universe of things, we, we go into a company, we, want to, we don't go in there with, it's refinancing, it's buying assets. We go in there, what are you trying to solve? And then based on what they say, we customize a bespoke solution for that. And that's really the heart of our firm. That's like, Flexibility at scale is really how we built Sixth Street. So we're not going in there with a hammer. We go in there with 20 different tools. They tell us what they're trying to solve, and then we try to solve it with them through a series of typically whiteboard exercises, iterating on what's the best solution for them. It's funny. It seems like everyone in the market is doing something opposite from what you did. It's You had a relationship back in the day with TPG, mm -hmm. right? You had a relationship with another firm, and now you're watching all these other firms tie up and consolidate. I'm very curious about what you think about all this industry consolidation and if you see it, again, for your future. I think it's going to continue because the natural maturation, you're, you're going to continue to see that. That's not what Sixth Street's thinking about. You know, we set up our firm. We're, we're, we're a little bit unique in that we set up our firm day one to be a multi-strategy firm in a private capital basis. A lot of the, the larger firms, they start off as private equity and they've reverse engineered into other businesses. From day one, we had a plan because that's the business that, that I ran and some of my other partners at Goldman and most recently our newest partner, Julian Salisbury, ran at Goldman. So we've always been thinking about it this way. So is that, that's not what we're thinking about. We're thinking about building a long-lasting firm to serve our clients, and that's what we're most focused on. Is there something, you know, you, you yourself had come from Goldman. Julian had also come from Goldman quite recently. Marty Chavez, former CFO of Goldman. Is there something about Sixth Street that is kind of like the Goldman of the past, mm. pre-IPO? We don't look at it that way. Like the way we look at it is we had a vision from the first day we set up Sixth Street, which is, as we've talked about, no silos, no politics, no BS, just good human beings trying to do right by our clients, complete flexibility. We go in there, now with a hammer, we try to be completely flexible. And then lastly is wrapping technology around every aspect of our business, from sourcing to asset management, every aspect of our business, which is Marty Chavez and, and, and Adam Korn coming in, two of the best engineers in the world. And when we think about what we're trying to be, we're not trying to build anyone else, we're trying to build Sixth Street. And that vision, you know, it's been, a, people are, have been attracted to it. That's why we've had a number of people join us. But we don't really, I don't spend any, people that know me, 
I never spend time, I never read anything that our competitors do. I don't care what our competitors do. We like to think independently and we're trying to be Sixth Street. That's all we're thinking about and that's kind of how we approach the world. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.